just a bloke in a bar. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Bloke in a Bar. I am incredibly, uh, mate, honoured to have the great Gus Gould here on Bloke in a Bar. How you going, brother? Good, mate. You, mate. I'm very good now that the great Gussie's here. It's uh, how's the uh, I guess how's the last few weeks been for you, mate? It's been a, a big year for obviously, you know, a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. Uh, for yourself personally, though, how's it been? Yeah, good. Never seen the sun shining so brightly, as I always say. Uh, yeah, very busy. We're always busy this yep. time of year. Uh, Channel 9, obviously it's finals time. Mm. Uh, there's plenty happening at the Bulldogs and in and around Rugby League. And, um, you know, where people think you're getting to the end of the season and you're about to have a break, we're actually entering into our busiest time mm. in, in clubland, mm. uh, getting everything ready, reviewing the season we've had, getting everything organised for next year. Uh, new staff, new players, relocating kids, mm. all sorts of things have got to be done uh, during this period so that everything's spick and span when the players rock back in in November, ready to train again. Mm. I'd, I'd love to hear, and obviously just broad strokes, but the details of A, like squad planning, and like B, I guess for fans listening, what is the, the process of, you know, we always hear about, a review we're going to have a review and we always hear it when the clubs are struggling you very rarely hear it when they're going well but every club has a review no matter what what is the kind of process that you put in place i guess looking back at the year but then also making sure the squad is balanced heading into the the pre-season yeah it's a good question when you talk about reviews we have a review every day mm. we have a review of the day every day yeah, then we right. have a review of the week then we have a review of the month then we have a review of the season uh, media tends to latch on the word review as though it's something sinister. It's not. We review absolutely everything we do. Mm. Every training session, we film it, we review it mm. uh, with a view to getting better. What did we do wrong? What can we do better? What did we do great? How can we embellish that? You know, it's a, um, you know, review is not a scary thing in club land. It happens very, very regularly. But um, the question, I guess, in, in a broader sense, it depends where your club is at this particular point in time. It depends what sort of club it is mm. and what sort of programs you run. Uh, for instance, at the Bulldogs, um, in putting our pathways in place, we run a, a Harold Metz, which is an under-17s representative team. We run an under-19s representative team, an under-21s representative team, a Ron Massey Cup team, which is a, a grade just below New South Wales Cup, a New South Wales Cup team and a first-grade team. And we need all of that uh, working well over the next 10 years to produce the Bulldogs of the future, the club that we want to be leading into the future. So you, your management of your roster size and who's coming in and at what age and who are you recruiting and who are you developing and who are you speculating with really is where you are on the ladder. The, the, the Bulldogs have been um, pretty much a cellar dweller since about 2017 mm. and they've won a couple of wooden spoons in that time. So there is an enormous amount of work got to be done planning the future that's not going to you just don't click your fingers and fix that overnight where your top sides um you know like your panthers and melbourne storms your roosters that are established they pretty much know their team for next year now they know their squad sides for next year now they've been working on it for a, a number of years and it sort of it works into place um, um so we've got a hell of a lot more work to do than them obviously because they're they're top four sides and we're a bottom four side mm. um but you know we've for the Bulldogs, looking towards our future, we, we don't have a massive junior league. Um, we have a, a, a smallish on the small side type junior league. So we need to recruit not only at the top level for our top 30 because we're not developing players at the moment, but we recruit at the bottom level. Mm. So we've got satellite academy programs on the north coast of New South Wales from sort of Taree to Grafton. Um, greater northern area from sort of Muzzlebrook up through 
uh, Scone, Tamworth, Armidale, into that area, towards those sort of areas. Uh, we've got an association with Toowoomba in the Queensland Cup. Yeah, Toowoomba. Uh, we've got a southeast Queensland hub where kids that we've contracted in southeast Queensland can meet and do physical testing and mm. et cetera. We've signed an agreement recently with Christchurch around Coach the Coach programs and scouting yeah. there. Wow. And we've also signed an agreement with uh, a school in Auckland, St Paul's College in Auckland, which is one of the big schools there. And we've been running some clinics out of there. We'll help them with some gym equipment so that we can run programs there and the kids can get better. It's a, it's a rugby, rugby league school. Um, mm. So we need to recruit the kids that we want to turn into to Bulldogs of the future. We will bring the best of these in at sort of 17, 18 years of age. And... Um, and they'll go on the journey of trying to become a professional footballer. Mm. Only a small percentage get through, as you know. Mm. It's a hard game. It's hard to make it. But um, you need to start somewhere, and that's where we need to start. The management of our top roster, um, you, you kind of inherit certain issues when you take over a club and uh, salary capping and rosters, and sometimes it's two or three years to break that down to get it to where you need to be. And mm. if you're constantly having to recruit from other clubs to build your team, and if you're at the bottom of the ladder, you're looking at second chance, third chance, last chance type players. Yeah. And it's hard to – you're overpaying for players mm. because of where you are and you have to entice them. Um, players will take less to go to a club that's a chance of winning a premiership. Yeah. Um, that's where we aspire to be mm. you know, over the next decade. But yeah, it, it comes with a heap of challenges. So um, that's why we're busy at the moment um, because um, – Bulldogs over the last few years have sort of run last, last and 11th and they've run 15th again this year and mm. um, the rebuild really hasn't begun. All we've done is just put foundations in place to rebuild into the future. Mm. Uh, when you, It's almost like a dash of cold water when you hear just how wide-reaching the development is for a single club, you know, the Bulldogs, you know, all the way into Queensland, to Christchurch. You've been, you know, everyone talks about the Penrith Panthers and the incredible job you did there. But you actually was also, you know, to my understanding, a huge reason why Roosters had a lot of success in the early 2000s. Those different generations, is there a lot different? Is it harder to get, I guess, younger men and women on board to believe in something? Or is it easier? What, what's, is there any difference between the generations? No, I, I, I think that um, society has changed a lot in that time. And certainly the rugby league... Um, world has changed a lot. I talk about it being a different planet to back mm. when I played in the 80s, and it is. It's a completely different planet, mm. even into the 90s, um, the 2000s, um, and to where we are today. Um, and a lot of that has come about because of the diversity in our game, the multicultural na nature of our game, mm. the predominance of the Pacific Island player and how it's grown. Um, Pacific Island players, you know, probably make up 50% of our NRL talent at the moment, but it's probably closer to 65, 70% of our junior rep teams yeah, well, uh, yeah. because they're big, powerful boys. And, yeah. and these boys are now second and third generation, from second and third generation Australian families. Mm. They, their parents came here or grandparents came here a long time ago uh, and they're in the, the mix here. So, yeah, it's and, – and with that is full-time professionalism, which really didn't start until the late 90s, early 2000s, never really got it right and probably till about 2010, 2012 yeah. when we really understood what it was. Mm and probably still learning today. Um, look at all the clubs now, they're all building centre of excellences, they're all building great facilities and complexes, mm. to, you know, which is great for the perception of our game and the professionalism of our game. So, um, yeah, it's all, all done differently. And when I went to the Roosters in 94, 95, they'd run last in uh, first grade and reserve grade the previous year, and we had a great rebuilding thing. And Roosters had no junior league. Mm. 
mm. um, to speak of at all, a very, very small base uh, there in the Roosters. And we talked about you know, recruiting kids, young age, bringing them down, putting them in schools, but the eastern suburbs, that's very expensive. Mm. Country kids didn't really <laughs> adapt to coming and living <laughs> in the eastern suburbs. Yeah. And you know, housing was expensive. So put simply, what we said was, we'll let everyone recruit them and then we'll buy the best of them at 18 and 19 years of age. And that became a model <laughs> for, for a long period of time. So we'll let someone else do the hat work and <laughs> we'll just go and pay the best money for the best kids. <laughs> Which has oh. uh, stood the test of time. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, and even, even Roosters with no junior league um, every year and even this year. Um, you know, the Bears are in the grand final of the New South Wales Cup. Their under-20s are in the grand final of the, the Jersey flag. So um, they are regularly – it was interesting because the, the model we built at Panthers was obviously completely different. But during my time there, the number of times the Panthers were playing Roosters teams in – junior rep grand finals mm. was incredible because yeah. they had no junior league and we had a massive junior league mm. plus an outreach out to Western New South Wales. So yeah. Roosters did it really well. Mm. They set up their, um, their connection with Central Coast, which was after my time, but the philosophy of development was crucial. And I, I, I know of no other way. I, there may be better ways, but I know of no other way mm. to build a club. I, I try to build a club before I build a team and, um, and the team will emerge and it's a... Um, in a lot of respects, it's a numbers game. Mm. You become very good at your filtering process. Yeah. You know, so as you bring kids in, you become good, very good at filtering who's not going to make it, who's not going to stand up to the pressure of, of NRL yeah. training for a start. Mm. Um, and the first thing you've got to be able to do is teach them how to train. Mm. They've got to have the discipline and the commitment to keep doing it. And, uh, and then they've got to be good enough. Mm. And then they've got to not get hurt and not have other issues. And there yeah. are plenty of other factors that affect footballers' careers and their mentality, as you know. So it's a, you know, the... When I was coaching back in 94, it was me and a part-time trainer. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have assistant coaches. We didn't have high-performance teams. We yep. didn't have big medical staffs. You know, you had to go down the road and line up at a physiotherapist to get, a, <laughs> to get an appointment. Um, you know, when I first went to Panthers, um, we had 11 full-time staff. And with all due respect, probably half of them were qualified to do what they were doing. There was people working in the office yep. and... When I left, we had 54 yeah, wow. working in rugby league. And I think wow. we've got nearly 60-odd at Bulldogs now because we run a big program. We're running a women's program now, women's pathways program, hoping mm. to get an NRLW licence in the next couple of years. But the education and welfare side of it has grown. The, the, the mental health and well-being has, has grown a hell of a lot. Uh, physiotherapists, we've got three full-time physiotherapists, two full-time doctors you know, that are looking after the medical side of, of, of the players and their families. Um, your high performance team, sports science has been a big acquisition to the game. And then the coaching, the coaching, you know, the head coach has got three assistant coaches and then you've got your New South Wales Cup coach and he's got an assistant coach yeah. and you've got a Ron Massey Cup coach and he's got an assistant coach and the assistant's got an assistant. <laughs> and then the Jersey flag team, we've got five assistant coaches there and then and everyone that wants to be a part of the Bulldogs is, you know, grabs a shirt and comes out to help. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are on honorariums. They're not earning money at all. They just yeah. want to be a part of it. And then, of course, you've got your highly paid experts at the top. So... It's big business now. It's, it's, it's massive. And uh, at the Bulldogs, we've got government funding now. We're just about to build a $65 million centre of excellence at Belmore, which wow. will bring them into the new century. Um, we probably lit a fire under the competition at Panthers some years ago when we built the academy out there. Now, most clubs have, have got funding or in the process or have already built um, brilliant new facilities, which is great for the game because it, it, uh, it helps our game compete with other codes and for corporates and for the hearts and minds of people mm. and impresses player managers and parents, etc. So, yeah, 
every club should be made to do something in development. Mm. Some invest a lot, some invest very, very little. Um, but the good clubs have got a model that suits them. Mm. And they might all be different, but they've all got the one aim is scouting, finding, recruiting, developing, building you know, future NRL players mm. that want to be a part of your club. The Roosters, I think if you go back and look at their grand final teams even since 2002, whilst they do go out and buy a lot of quality marquee players, mm. you know, your Sonny Bill Williams or your Cooper Cronks or your James Tedesco's and those sort of works, uh, when they won comps, 12 or 13 of the, the starting yeah. 17 came to them as teenagers yeah. and developed through the system. And that's, it's what made the Broncos great back in the day and they got away from it and now they're back to that. It's where the Cowboys, I think, in recent times have, have, have found their niche. You know, Newcastle had it, got away from it, now getting back to it. Yeah. Uh, the Warriors had never really developed their pathway systems properly, but should be a juggernaut and will be a juggernaut. We're only seeing the, the tip of the iceberg here, what they're capable of. Canberra's really getting their act together. Uh, Melbourne have always had a good system, albeit most of their development's been up in, in Queensland, but they've actually got a really good rugby league base down there now yeah. in the local area in Victoria, which mm. um, I'm interested to go down and have a look at. So, yeah, it's it's a different system for every club and your system caters for your needs of the day, where your team ranks and how it's going and what the future looks like. But once you start it, you've got to keep continuing it. You've got to get layer on layer on layer on layer year after year and never let up on it because... You're always going to need good kids coming through. Players are going to become more valuable and go out at the top. We're seeing that at Panthers now with their success. But they've always got kids coming through. And if your system's working right, every time you see a Rooster Kid debut or you see a Panther debut, they look like an NRL player. Yeah. They look like they belong. Yeah. You know, it's same with the Broncos. Broncos had that for many, many years. Mm. Kid would come in, he just looked like he'd been there his whole time because yeah. the system was good. So while we keep proving that, we'll always have enough players and that gets into expansion. If everyone invested the same and did the same, there's plenty of players out there. Mm. We've just got to provide the opportunity. Mm. And there's plenty of opportunities to scour the world for talent. We just can't be assuming that, you know, every six foot five, 115 kilo front rower is born on the eastern seaboard of New South Wales <laughs> and Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> there are big people all around the world yes, there are. that could play Absolutely. this game if given the opportunity, yeah. you know. So um, I remember reading a book with Manchester United, it's Alex Ferguson, when he first started, you know. And they were a major club. And he said, how many talent scouts have we got? They said, we've got two. We've got two of the very best. Mm. He said, good, I want 12. Yeah, wow. And they set up academies all around the world and yeah. scouted their talent from everywhere. It's right. They nearly got me. They were my team when I was growing up. Was it? Well, uh, and they got you to play. Well, they didn't really get me to play. <laughs> I would have gone over there, no. But they, you know, I was obviously in Australia and being a soccer fan, um, they were the team that I stayed up late and, and watched, um, you know, growing up and, you know, as a, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, they were who I dreamed of hopefully one day playing, obviously. You know, it's a, it's I was a lucky. I went over to, um, to the UK some years ago uh, with the Panthers and I went to the Everton Football Club, big mm. football club over there, and it's probably not as famous as some of the others, but yeah. it, it's purely a development club. They develop talent to sell it. That's how they, their operation works. You yeah. know, and they had, I think they had something like 24 training fields that far stretched out. as far as you could see. And you start out there yeah. and you make your way towards the big clubhouse. Yep. You know? And I said to them, I said, at what age do you start recruiting? You know? And he said, oh, five and six. Insane. I said, years of age. And they said, yeah. <laughs> I said, what are you recruiting five and six-year-olds? They said, well, they're going to need that development to do the training they're going to have to do as 15 and 16-year-olds. Mm. And they're going to have to do that to compete at 17 and 18-year-olds if they want to play in you know, emerging professional teams. And it's the... the, uh, you know, the physical literacy that they're going to have to need and um, they actually pick kids up at 
at home in hire cars at five and six years of age preschool, mm. bring them in to come in and do a couple of hours of skills, yeah. put them back in the hire car, take them to school, nice. pick them up after school, bring them back to the, the facility, sit mm-hmm. them down with their tutor and do their homework, yeah. and then come out and do another couple of hours. And, and you do – you know, I read a book on the making of a champion and it goes through all the, the prodigious talents over the years, like the Williams sisters in tennis and Tiger Woods in golf and they're mm. the famous ones you read. And when you go back to it, when they actually picked up a club or a racket and what was their training and their environment like and and, and that's where European or well, world soccer has got that right. Yeah. There are different models all around the world of soccer development. But it starts from the time they can kick the ball. Mm. You know, where in rugby league we kind of don't. Mm. You know, we have junior league football, but it's really, in a lot of respects, a child mining service and mm. it's a, a bit of a community thing. And yeah. of all, all of those that first put on a boot to play rugby league, it's because their mates did it or yeah. they saw it on TV. They're mm. never going to be NRL players. Yeah. But they might be future fans. Mm. They might be future sponsors. They might be future yeah. you know, people that are involved in the game in a different regard. Doctors, lawyers, all sorts of things, physiotherapists, you know, um, sports science people. So... Uh, your first your first impressions in our code are extremely important, and uh, wherever we've gone, we've tried to build that association with the junior sports as well. It's a, mm. a cradle to the grave mentality. Mm. Yeah, I mean you, you're absolutely right. Uh, when I went to Menu, like because we went over to England for soccer, played Manchester United under 16s, and they were just professional. Like we, we the only reason we were competitive is because we we're just hyper aggressive <laughs> as Aussies, but. Um, it's incredible the systems they have there. Uh, just on my podcast, um, I constantly cop flack from Bulldogs fans because I've been saying all year, stay patient. Don't you know? There's been some good signings, but it doesn't just click. You know, you look at the spine; they haven't played much rugby league together. You can have the best spine in the world, but if they haven't played together, it it almost doesn't matter sometimes, unless you know you get lucky. When fans are, I guess, getting that kind of we want success right now is like how do you let's say your fan walks down the road and says you know i want success this year or next year what's a what's a way how do you look at the next couple of years for the bulldogs and what's the kind of i don't mean a locked in spot where you hope to be on the ladder but i guess where would you say a successful x amount of years is where you think the club is the club as you said you build clubs not footy teams would be yeah look <laughs> That's a great question because, you know, my, my view is always a long-term view mm. and people want short-term results. They understand the long-term philosophy. They understand that's going to be good for us down the track. But can we just win this weekend? You know, <laughs> yeah, can we, yeah. can we get, get a win there because I hate losing? And we all hate losing. Yeah. Uh, I have, you know, sort of trained myself in these roles to be emotionally unattached to the current results mm. because I can't be. I can't be influenced that. I can't be influenced. I mean, I respect everything the fans have to say. I understand it and mm. I listen to it. Yeah. But I don't make promises. I'm not the one that makes promises about where we're going to be and what we're going to do because mm. basically I don't know how long that's going to take. Mm. Um, we could get lucky and get a special crop of players through at an early stage or it might take a few years. And, um, you know, it's, these, these are generational things sometimes, you know. What I can say is that um, over the last 18 months, underneath, you know, and, and this is the hard part of being in a football club. Everyone in our organisation, doesn't matter if they're in marketing, licensing, sponsorship, membership, you know, mowing the fields, putting out the gear, doesn't matter who works in your organisation, everyone is judged by that first grade result on the weekend, mm. that scoreboard from the NRL team. Yeah, right? So 
you could be doing brilliantly internally and getting a whole lot of things done and doing really well at what you're doing commercially and development wise and you know community wise and sponsorship wise uh, you know, you'd be doing a lot of things really good but if the team gets beaten 66 nil on the weekend yeah. everyone's hopeless at what they do yeah. and we've got to start true. again so so true so that's why I try not to be emotionally attached to it I, I get it mm. and I'm happy for the fans to feel that way and have that passion mm. and it'll make the good times even better when we get there mm. When that is, I don't make any promises on that. I can't. Mm. What I do know is that incrementally we'll get better every day and we'll get better every year. Um, as for trying to go out and buy instant success, every now and then someone might be able to do that. But you know, history says it doesn't happen. You need to develop your club and develop your talent over time. You need to bring kids through and have them attached to playing for our club and want to be a mm. bulldog and, and come through there. In the meantime, what we're trying to do is put together some teams that can hold our hand up you know, have our club perceived in a more positive light and have other players want to come here. Mm. Have parents want to send their young fellas to us um, and have um, you know, other players want to join us. Going out and buy one player to change your fortunes in this day, in this market, is extremely difficult. I've never seen the player market the way it is at the moment. Yeah, well. There's very, very little on the market. Uh, now that we're at 17 teams, clubs hold on to their talent very, very tightly. Mm. Um, certain positions, your key positions like your halves and your front rowers, your playmakers and those sort of things, big boys up front, particularly with rule changes, there is a, a different type of athlete now that's required in this game, are a rare commodity. Mm. And when you've got them, you won't be letting them go. And that's mm. why we get longer-term contracts. Yeah. New CBA agreements and more money into the game, players are happy to sign for longer because it's a guarantee of security, which yeah. in a game where there is little security, mm. um, you know, we see mm. that in the coaching and the staff ranks as well. So... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy where we are, mm. but I'm happy where we are mm. in where we need to get to. I know that we're on the right track. Um, we've made some purchases for next year and you know, we probably we had to adjust our salary cap to put ourselves in a position to do that. This year that left us very vulnerable mm. because uh, there were a number of players that we moved on last year simply because our salary cap was out of whack and... We had to remove them without adequately replacing them mm. to put you know, a 30-player list together this year um, in the hope that we could buy some players for next year. We bought some nice players for next year as well. Um, it left us vulnerable. And then we had the injury run, which exposed us badly, particularly in the middle part of the season. They got off to a good start. They won three of their first five, four of their first seven. It probably was a false dawn from the fans' perspective, and that's why it feels more alarming when they fell away at the back end of the year. But... Mm. I always felt this year was going to be a big struggle for them. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the coming years are going to be a struggle. It is a struggle in the NRL. Mm. The biggest struggle is the good teams are so good. <laughs> and they're so well established. Yep. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're a little off and, you know, you will get a big scoreline put mm. on you. Yeah. Now, there are some days you go to the football thinking, we could get beaten by 50 today. Mm. And you're kind of glad when it's, you know, 30 to 20 or something like that. You feel yeah. like you've had a good day. <laughs> We, we went to Penrith this year um, to play Penrith on a Sunday out there, a Sunday afternoon, sunny Sunday afternoon. Virtually it was 16 or 18 first graders missing from our squad, yeah. fearing what could have happened. Mm. We got beat 44 to 18. It was like we'd won. Mm. You know, that's, yeah. that's where your club gets to sometimes, mm. and it's not a nice place to be. Being in a losing football club is not a pretty place oh. to be. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. It's hard for everyone, yeah. and it's hard mentally, particularly on the inexperienced. Mm. Um, it's hard on... The more seasoned players, why did I do this? Why did I come here? Yeah. You know, I could have been playing 
with a team in the finals. Yeah. And then when you sit back and watch these finals and watch these scenes at Newcastle and uh, over in Auckland and watch the Panthers and the Broncos, how good they are, and Roosters and Storm are there again, and you look at them playing at finals intensity, which is a cut above what they're yeah. used to, and you're thinking, we couldn't survive in those games at the moment. Yeah. So we've got a long way to go. Um, but what I find with the Bulldogs fans, you know, and even those that, that have a bit of a complaint and jump up and down, they get it. Mm. They know it's going to take time. Um, you know, we'll try to get some short-term results out of this long-term plan. Mm. Just how long-term the plan takes, I can't give any guarantees on yeah. that. Um, other than the fact that I know we're moving in the right direction. We've got some nice kids. In the space of 18 months, we've won the under-17s representative competition. There's no guarantee of anything in the future, but at least we're doing it well. Mm. Our under-21s jersey flag team will play in the grand final this week against the Roosters, mm. um, who've got no junior league, but they've still got great sides there. So, you know, we've probably got eight or ten young hopefuls in the club that I can see as real NRL possibilities. Mm. No guarantees, but they're NRL possibilities. Now, if I can layer that on year after year after year after year, in four or five years' time, we're going to have a completely different look about us and mm. a completely different feel about us, provided the club stays patient, mm. which... History shows over the decade, they probably last decade they probably haven't been patient. Yeah, um, but we just need to show some patience and some resilience internally to keep stability, um, to keep our board, to keep our management, to keep our coaching staff, and uh, we can't keep changing those areas at the top and hope that things are going to improve because they just won't. Mm. We need stability, and that's the driving point for me at the moment. Uh, is all that off-field stuff. What I can say is that you don't see it yet, but. Underneath, it's building nicely and, mm. and the frameworks are in place and it will produce results down the track. Mate, I would love to know, it wouldn't have been a specific time, but you clearly have a deep love for the game because the stuff you do have to deal with sometimes, you surely at this time, you like, you know what, I've done enough in the game, I could just put my feet up, but you seem to love it so much. What, what was the, when you were younger playing rugby league, did you realise that you would have such a deep connection with the game for such a long period of time? No. Mm. I, don't, I don't think I've ever planned anything in my life. I mean, where my, where my life's gone. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't change a thing. But it's, it's, my love for the game started back in the 60s, which is a long, long time ago. Mm. Longer than most of your listeners were even thought of. <laughs> Maybe their parents, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my love for the game was in the 60s when I first saw it. And remember, there was no football on TV in those days. Yeah. There was no mobile phones and there was no, you know, TV football on TV, you had to go to the game. And that was – and Dad might be able to afford to do that two or three times a year. Yeah, so true, so true. You know, you certainly never got jerseys and gifts and all that. So you, so you went to the football with Dad and – It's like an event. Sat on the hill, mm. you know, with the needy and, and hot dog, program, cheer, the colour, the excitement. That's what gravitated you towards it. And I was a, I was a Dragons fan back there. Why? Because they were winning everything. Yeah. <laughs> they won everything. So yeah. you, everyone was a Dragons fan. Yeah. And that's where you fell in the love of the game. Never, ever thinking, you know, at, at the time I was playing soccer. Mum put me into soccer. Oh, really? Yeah, it's safer. Put him yeah. into soccer. So yeah. I was playing soccer. Yeah. And I wasn't bad at soccer. Yeah. But I was the kid that took a rugby league ball to training every night. So <laughs> Okay. <laughs> After a few years, the coach just said, you don't, you don't belong here, mate. There's a rugby league team it's down very the road. Different. It's you very different. You go down there, yeah. Um, yeah, and, but... You grow up like all kids, you know, playing in the backyard, playing down the park with your mates, and life was different then. You'd race home from school on your bike, have a quick sandwich, race down the park, and you'd have a game of football with whoever's in the park. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Big, tall, short, 
fat, skinny, didn't really matter, yep. old, young, didn't matter. We'd make up the rules to suit everyone else and we'd play till when? Till the streetlights come on yeah. and you had to go home. And we'd do it every afternoon, yeah. you know? not ever thinking that it was a career. Yeah. And, when I, and when I first went into grade football, I got the shock of my year at the end of the year because they got paid. <laughs> I didn't know you got paid. And I thought, fancy paying you to play footy. That's ridiculous. <laughs> mate, that's so true. Yeah. Mate. Because it's, it's purely love then. It's back in that, like, special. That's what it was. And, and I, as I say, like, the rugby league world back then is a different planet to this. Mm. Like, and I hear all my mates that I played with and blokes from my year and all that sort of, and they talk about footy and they talk about this and that and that. And I often sit there and smile to myself saying, if you only knew mm. how far away from this modern day we really were yeah you can see the embryo in it you know it's obviously there's a lot of similarities in that regard but it's a different planet and i played in the 80s and then went into coaching and then from coaching i went into media always thinking i would go back to coaching but never did it and then ended up by fluke in administration and doing these sort of roles and and that's where my life has gone and now i look at my watch and my life's nearly over and that's all i've been doing i I haven't left this rugby league thing And, and it's been brilliant i mean if i die i want to come back as myself i don't don't, don't want anything to change (laughs) that's when you know you've had a good life when you say if i come back it'll be as me if i get reincarnated i want to come back and do it all again i don't know if i'd last the distance if i did it again now that i think about it it was pretty tiring but no it's um it's fascinating you know i've never taken anything for granted if someone taps me on the shoulder tomorrow and says it's over Mm. i'd say what a great time that was you know it's brilliant (laughs) Been very, very, very lucky. Very lucky. So you played, I guess, professionally is the wrong word, but was it about 10 years that your rugby league career kind of spanned and then you got into coaching? Yeah, so I, I started at um, Panthers in 1976 as an 18-year-old. Mm. And uh, you went up and trialled in February. Dad got me a trial with the Panthers to go and trial. I hadn't played for 12 months. <laughs> he, he wouldn't... They wouldn't let me use sixth form or year 12 at mm. school because um, I wasn't allowed to play sport on weekends because I'd been a bad boy. So <laughs> I had to give that up to try and pass my HSC. And then the following year, I was on a fishing trip with a mate and Dad rang and said, I've got your trial with the Panthers. Is that a trial for what? He said, rugby league. I said, I don't want to play rugby league. I said, I'm out fishing. He said, no, <laughs> you've got to come back. I had to drive all the way from Batemans Bay back to Penrith and trial on this day. Yeah, and we're trialled and I made the, the under-23s in that year and actually had half a game in first grade later that year, and it sort of just took on its own life form from there. Mm. Now, five years with the Panthers, two years with Newdown, three years with the Bulldogs. I finished my career with one year at South, and I'd had a lot of injuries, a lot of bad injuries, mm. long-term injuries in that time. So um, by the time I'd sort of finished at South in that year, I just decided uh, I'd probably had enough playing. Mm. Um, uh, and... And I'd also got the offer to go back to Canterbury and coach the lower grades in 87. Mm. So I went back there and, again, by fluke, um, the following year I ended up the head coach yeah, well, yeah. in 88, which is seems ridiculous now, doesn't it? Yes, like, so you get the one year and then before you know it, you're the head coach of the, the first grade side. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Wait, so when you first got the offer with the Bulldogs... Because you had a leadership role uh, in the minor premiership for the Rabbitohs in your last year, if I'm correct. Yeah, we went clear. I think we only finished a point outside the minor premiership. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I'd sort of um, – I was at Canterbury 83, 84, 85. I joined there from Newdown. Newdown went broke. I played with Newdown. They made a grand final and Newdown went broke and we all sort of moved on. And 
uh, I went to the Bulldogs very luckily and got to play with the, a lot of those great players who'd won the comp in 1980, your Hughes's, mm. your Mortimer's, your Anderson's and Folks's and all those sort of players. And, um, and then in 84, Warren Ryan came to the club and they won a couple of competitions and um, uh, I was involved with that. I, I had bad injuries during that time um, which kept me off the field for long periods. Um, kept playing. Then in 86, I went to join South Sydney um, Met a bloke called George Piggins. I actually reneged on South twice before, <laughs> before meeting George, and he convinced yep. me to come across. I wanted to stay at the Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was my club, you know. Yeah. But um, uh, they made me a ridiculously silly offer uh, <laughs> to go to South Sydney, and I see. Even then, I said no, and uh, and then George Piggins rang me up. I went and met George and uh, his wife Nolene, and he told me what he was trying to do for South, and he was taking on coaching for the first time, and. He was always very, um, very kind with his, his compliments and the contribution I made there. But I had one year there and then got asked to go back to the Bulldogs in 87 to coach reserve grade. And at the end of that year, Warren Ryan quit. And they had to find a coach for 12 months because Chris Anderson was coming back from England. He was over there mm. coaching Halifax. So uh, they asked me to do the job in 88, um, which we won the comp. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of set us on our way, yeah. It like... Well, firstly, when you did get the offer to coach, was it something that you jumped at and said, like, I would love to be a coach, or was it more like, I want to give this a try and see if I enjoy it? Uh, I was working. We all worked yeah. in those days. We had jobs. Mm. So I was working with Aristocrat Leisure Industries, which is a poker machine company, mm. and um, I'd failed at a number of things. I'd been to university and didn't finish that because of the rugby league. I'd gone out and worked in a number of jobs. Yeah. Um, and Dad tried to get me in the police force, but I was colourblind and didn't pass the test. I passed everything else. And then eventually I got this job with Aristocrat Leisure. It was a great job. And uh, so football was just a love. It mm. really was. It wasn't about the money. It was mm. probably the best second job you could have. Some people worked on weekends doing things. We played football. Mm. That's what it was. Mm. Got you a nice trip away at the end of the year or got you a nice car or got you a holiday or something or other. Mm. Um, I was kind of lucky uh, with the money that I earned playing. I didn't earn a lot of money, but the last year I played in 1986, I paid the last payment on my first home, oh, wow. uh, which was a very modest little house out there at Greystains. And, but I owned it. That was what I got for all my bumps and bruises and injuries. Mm. And, uh, and then this offer to come back and coach reserve grade under Warren um, was kind of, well, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm a poker machine salesman mm. and I can still get involved with the football even though I'm not playing. How yeah. good's that? Yeah, okay. So I went back to Canterbury with blokes that I'd played with for three years mm. and coached the reserve grade under Warren. And then uh, I still remember the day Peter Moore came to me and said, uh, you know, matey, Warren Ryan's walked, mm. gone. I said, I need a coach for 12 months. Can you do it? And I just, <laughs> I thought it was a joke. But then I thought, well, there are, we'll give this a shot. See how it goes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what happened. <laughs> so, um, and then you um, lifted a premiership. <laughs> we won the comp. <laughs> we won the comp. <laughs> And then two years later, um, uh, uh, I went to Penrith. Yeah. <laughs> and we won again. <laughs> <laughs> and then, we all, I'm like, I'm like, like this. Yeah, because you sort of won those. I thought, well, you know, um, I've got some sort of secret, which I didn't. <laughs> and they make you an origin case. You go there and you win a few series there. Next thing we'll – and then the Super cool. League war breaks out and all of a sudden you find yourself in the media – because you become a spokesman yeah. for this or that. And <laughs> next thing I had a media career. And I'm, I'll retire from coaching because I'm burnt out. 
I went into this media career thinking, well, I'll go back and coach in a couple of years. Yeah. I will. Uh, I never did. Close, I went up, I was coaching director at the Roosters for three years, 2002, mm. 2004. Um, yeah, but somehow, you know, worked in the media with a great organisation, wonderful people, and I haven't planned a thing. Mm. It just keeps bubbling. I keep waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and say it's over. But, <laughs> yeah. It's still going. It's still it's going. Still going. <laughs> <laughs> so that first year when, you know, you... Was it a dominant year or was there a point in the year where you were like, oh, we, we did you know you had the roster or was it a year? Because like, I'm assuming football back then or league was, it wasn't as straightforward as, oh, we got the roster so we should win the comp. I feel like there might have been a bit more to it of like, almost an intangible, like who has the best, you know, playing for your mate kind of thing. Mm. Obviously talent was still a big uh, reason, but because I'm assuming a lot of clubs are playing for the love it's almost who loves it more to a degree. Was that the case or was it a roster? What was that year like for you that first year? Well, you've got to understand Canterbury's record in the 80s was astonishing. Mm. They won the comp in 1980, they won it in 84, 85, played in the grand final in 86. So we'd sort of been, that was what we thought was the norm, was Mm. to be winning premierships, Mm. to being dominant. They missed the eight, they missed the top five in 1987 for the wrong reasons. They just got stale and they got wrong and there were mm. some internal issues there and that's why the coach ended up leaving at the end of the season. And in 88, when I took over, obviously because a rookie coach and we lost a number of key players, but we still had the nucleus of young people that had been in that organisation for four or five years. Most of the blokes I coached, I'd actually been a senior player when they were kids coming through. Oh, so wow. your Langmax and Farrers and Gillespies and Hagens and those sort of kids yeah. were actually younger players when I was when I was playing with the club. Mm. And uh, so I'd played with and against pretty much everyone in the in the team. We mm. brought a few kids in from elsewhere. Brandon Lee and Glennie Nissen came from Penrith, where I, I knew kids up there. A kid called Robin Thorne come down from Queensland, and I, I took a kid called Greg Barwick from the Bulldogs. Um, he went across to the Bulldogs as well. So. Um, yeah, they were – and I think at the start of the year we were probably 10 to 1 chances. We weren't considered yeah, wow. as a top five certainty. Wow. We, in fact, backed ourselves at 10 to 1. Okay. Which is how we paid for our trip oh, away. Oh, okay. you actually backed yourself. We actually backed yeah, ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a speech. We actually backed ourselves. We had, a, we, had a, we had an internal punters club during the season, which I think we raised about 10000 I think we backed ourselves at $10 and, and uh, That's that gave us plenty of money to take the whole club to Hawaii for a couple of weeks after the grand final. That's another pleasure taken away from us. End of season trips, isn't it? Oh, Can't do that in the world of mobile phones no, anymore. No, no. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, so we, we were kind of like internally, no one really gave us a chance, mm. but internally we didn't expect anything different. And mm. we, I think we only lost six games all year. We were always bubbling around the top three, mm. got to the finals and, um, <coughs> and just went bang, bang, bang. Yeah. And there was a top five in those days, mm. but we were really confident we won our three games and beat three really good sides. We beat Canberra. In the 88 semi-finals, they went on to win 89, 90, you know, and mm. the grand final in 91, so they were no slouches. Yeah. Um, Warren Ryan had gone to the Balmain Tigers, and they went to grand finals in 89 and 90. Uh, 89 as well. So, you know, they were, it was a good era, um, but, yeah, we, we were good. We, um, yeah, it was a wonderful year, really no hiccups at all. Mate, it's the first year. Wow, wow. So, what what was the catalyst to go to the Panthers? Then was it because you had grown up playing for them, or was there other reasons? No, well, um, 
as I said to you, they, the club had organised for Chris Anderson to come back and coach the Bulldogs, mm. and he was finished with his England commitments. And uh, We had a tough year in 89. Um, I remember it being a very, very wet season, and we lost a number of players. We won the comp in 88, probably mm. had a bit of a hangover there, which was a great learning experience. And, and at the end of the year, uh, the club was keen for Chris Anderson to take uh, to take the reins there. Um, I still could have stayed, but the opportunity come to coach at the Panthers, mm. who I'd been involved with, obviously, for the first five years of my, my career and still had a strong yep. affinity with. I'd actually worked at Panthers League during my time, uh, there, so I, I knew everyone there. And uh, it was kind of like, well, I left Panthers in 1980, um, to go off and see a different side of the rugby league world, mm. Newdown and Canterbury and South Sydney and back to the Bulldogs and kind of got back to Penrith in 1990 with a very talented young group of players that uh, I thought, well, maybe the experiences I've got over the last decade can help them and it certainly did. They were a cracking side. Mm. Went to grand finals in 90 and 91 and I think that had been around for a long time had we not had tragedy hit our club and, mm. um, and that was a sad, very, very sad time in all our lives but... 90 and 91 was extremely special. The mm. Panthers will go on to win 100 premierships, but there's, there's only ever one first time. Mm. Um, yeah. Yep. That was a, it was an amazing occasion. Does it Obviously, you know, every premiership you win means a lot, but for a, you know, a young fellow that played their early career, there is something kind of – there is a connection there, well, in my opinion anyway. Was it um, not extra special, but a different kind of special because you had such a connection to Penrith? Yeah. I mean, um, Penrith was – well, that was still a young club. They only mm. came into the competition in 1967. Mm. I went to their first game with my dad and my yeah, grandfather wow. at Penrith oh, Park. Yeah. That is crazy. It's a long time ago. To be at their first game and then to lead them to their... Penrith Park, yeah. yeah. It was wow. um, it was incredible. And uh, I made my debut. My first run on in first grade was at Penrith Park. Mm. You know, so, And I'd worked at Penrith Leagues for a number of years as a trainee manager there. Mm. When I'd sort of left university as I was, yeah, the last couple of years. I captained the club. Yeah, at a young age. So, and a lot of the people um, from that era are still mates. You know, they still have a great love for the club and a connection. Penrith is a very special sort of environment, mm. and it was kind of the coming of the age of the Panthers at that time. And we had a brilliant young football team. It was the likes of you know your Greg Alexander's, your Cartwrights, and your guys, your Roy Simmonses, and those sort mm. of players. Some great lo- local juniors, um, players like Steve Carter, Brad Fittler was just emerging. Um, uh, it was a really good side, and to win a premiership, we had to beat a champion side mm. in, the, in the Raiders. If you yeah. go look at the Raiders squads cool. in those times, yeah. to beat them in a grand Strong. final. Should have beat them in 1990. Mm. Uh, and we beat them in 1991 to win the club's first ever premiership. So it made it even more special, the quality of the team that we, that we beat to do it. And they were a very special group of players. And um, as I say, when tragedy hit the club the following year and, and took a long time to recover from that. But... It was a very special time um, in all our lives. Yeah. So, so you win that. Who, who in that grand final? What's your most vivid memory? Something that just sticks out to you that you in your mind's eye. Um, it's it's one of the great studies. I, I actually, every time I'll flick over, it might be being played on TV. I can't look away. I've got yeah, to go okay. back and watch it again, and yeah. you see something different the whole time. Mm. And I remember telling them after the game, like, we got beaten in 1990 in the grand final. Mm. Um, unluckily, you know, we're down 18-14. We'll, uh, I think the game was held up for three quarters of an hour because there was extra time in the previous game. And no way. We were sort of rookies at it. And, um, yeah, and we, we were down 12-0 pretty yeah. quickly in the game. Yeah. We got back to be beaten 18-14. And mm. it was kind of the, the one you had to lose to win. Yeah. And 
what we went through in the next 12 months, we never cut a corner. We never, there wasn't a stone unturned in trying to get better and we did absolutely everything we could and we never missed a beat. Mm. Yet we're down 12-6 with 12 minutes to go you know, and we end up winning 19-12. And I said to him, had we cut one corner, had mm. we cheated on one run, had we not done all that, then this wouldn't have been possible. You yeah. know? Um, I think um, the highlights of the day were obviously Roy Simmons scoring the two tries, mm. but um, Greg Alexander's captaincy and play on the day uh, up against formidable opposition, his field goal from 40 metres out to put us in front, yeah. I think was a major turning point. But in the second half, we were down 12-6 at halftime. Um, exactly the same score we were down 12 months earlier. No way. So we were down 12-6 at halftime um, in 1990, and we ended up getting beat in 1814. Here we were 12 months later and down 12-6 again at halftime mm. against this great Canberra side. And I think the last thing I said to them was, whatever it is we've learned over the last 12 months, now's the time to show it. Mm. And they probably come up with the most perfect 40 minutes of football yeah. that you could hope to produce in that era. Wow. Different sort of football. Yeah. And we got... Turned away so many times. Canberra defended so grimly, saved so many tries. Mm. You know, like we were over the line three or four. Just couldn't quite get one. But I kept feeling, if we get one, we'll get a couple, mm. uh, which ended up happening. And uh, uh, it, it took to the last ten minutes to get over the top of them. But um, those memories have lasted a lifetime. But yeah, I, I what what I kept thinking about the whole game was we've done the work. Mm. We'll keep coming, and I could see them physically wilting. Yeah. And our blokes getting stronger and uh, and they finished over the top of them. As I say, we didn't beat Slouches, we beat a champion team. So yeah. that was a, a feather in their cap. Wow. I mean, it's, I mean, it's incredible to hear the, the inside of whatever we've learned in 12 months, we need to show That's it. the last thing I said to them yeah. uh, was um, whatever it is you've learned in the last 12 months, mm. now's the time to show it. And also, you know, the one you've got to lose to win – isn't it funny how kind of history repeats itself to a degree? The Penrith Panthers, basically the favourites, they get to the storm. Cam Smith leads them to a, almost an ambush grand yeah. final win. Yeah. And now Panthers are, yeah, first of all, whenever they play the storm, they've got a chip on their shoulder. And mm. second of all, now they may be going for three on the trot. Yeah. I remember that grand final well because I actually commentated that grand final. I got criticised for being biased because I think at one stage Melbourne were leading 16-0 and I was mm. saying Panthers are on top here, they're still going well. You know, like it mightn't be reflected on the scoreboard, but there was an element of luck uh, about the Melbourne Storm thing. And the only thing beating Panthers was inexperience. Yeah, they were actually out footballing them and out physicaling them. But, and people sort of saw that as bias. It wasn't, it was what I was seeing. And in fact, Penrith won the second half, I think, 20 to 4, mm. got back to be beaten 2024. Mm. And since that day, they've now played in three grand finals and, and won two premierships, or they're about to go to their third premiership. So, um, you know, everything I was seeing in the first half of that manifested itself into the future. Mm. Right there on the day, mm. they were dominant in the second half and, and made a great comeback and then uh, what they've done since. And they're a, they're a generational football team. They're a remarkable football club these mm. days and a football team. But, um, yeah, it's – I think um, – and that was on my own experience because I only ever played in one grand final. It was 1981. It was yeah. my first. and. Mm. You look back on it afterwards, you lose. We lost narrowly and we were in front for a long time, but then you think back of all the things that could have been different, of all the ways, I could, just give me one more go, yeah. you know, and you don't get another go at it. Mm. You know, it's kind of like uh, when you're younger and even when you're coaching and playing and you're winning premierships, you think this is going to last forever. Mm. It doesn't. Your career doesn't last forever. 
you know, the, the easy times or the good times never last forever. So it was a great learning experience. Um, yeah, in 1990, we were just new. Mm. We were just new and immature as a football team and still not where we needed to be and, and Canberra got us. 12 months later, they were a completely different group of blokes, a completely different team and, uh, and they deserved their victory. And as I say, they all, they all remain great mates with each other today and that's the special things you get out of those types of eras. Again, different brand of football, different mm. times. Yeah. Um, whether those blokes would have been better if they had full-time training or whether or not they'd have handled full-time training <laughs> and full-time discipline and commitment, whether they'd have handled the life with mobile phones, I don't know. You know. <laughs> oh. And media scrutiny. There was no media oh, scrutiny back in the day. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, yeah, when you think about it, I get goosebumps and, and remember that. It's, uh, as I say, very, very lucky. Now, the next year, so it would have been 92 coach New South Wales and you know you win your first three series so it's just like especially when you you look how I don't think people give enough appreciation origin is and it sounds like a stupid thing to say origin is so hard to win it, like people think that you just oh yeah we got this great roster we're just going to go out and there is just everything needs to fall your way and you have need to have 17 blokes or an entire squad as you would know better than anyone that the decision to coach New South Wales was it an easy one? Was it a hard one? Was it an exciting one? What what was it like? Well, again, I don't know why it happened. Mm. Um, the first four years that I coached first grade, we went to three grand finals and won two competitions, which is insane. <laughs> insane. It's absolutely crazy. I still didn't know what I was doing <laughs> as a coach back then. Um, uh, but I guess at the time, New South Wales, John Quayle was the boss of the New South Wales Rugby League at the time. Mm. And Ken Arthurson was the chairman of the, the league. And New South Wales had not had a great history in origin. Mm. I think at that stage there'd been, I don't know, 12, 11 or 12 origins or something. And Queensland had won like a nine or eight or nine of them, you know. Mm. New South Wales had been struggling. And uh, so they were – John Quayle was desperate for New South Wales to, to get back into it mm. and to one day level the score. Yep. So um, I guess when you're in positions like that, um, you go out and find someone who's winning and say, well, you know, if I pick him, I'm not going to get the blame for it, he will. So, <laughs> so they kind of say, well, you've just won a couple of comps, you come in and coach the origin, which was difficult for me because I didn't play representative football. Mm. I, I hadn't ever been in the representative environment before mm. um, and was kind of, well, back then you're pretty brash and confident. I was kind of, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, yeah. you know, it'll be right. But um, then when I really stopped to think about it, I'd never been in that mm circle of player before or I'd played with representative class players I'd played with players who played origin for New South Wales and lost mm. and couldn't understand because they were so talented why they lost but I was also a pretty keen student of uh, the game and origin football and watched why I thought Queensland beat New South Wales why very often New South Wales had seemingly more talented teams mm. but Queensland keep betting them with something else mm. um, and I think um Firstly, people underestimated the talent in that Queensland side mm. and a bloke called Wally Lewis and Gene Miles and those sort of players. Uh, but secondly, there was another thing at play there, which was what they called Queensland spirit, but that comes across in many ways mm. and forms. And um, I felt that uh, whilst Queensland were great and Queensland um, really knew what they were doing in this environment, um, 
New South Wales was probably contributing to its own demise by not paying attention to those things that Queensland valued and, and saw as important. So I was very lucky, extremely lucky that in 92 when I took on the Origin Reigns that A, I was able to express that to the players and B, that they were open enough to express back to me too that they didn't like losing. They couldn't understand why it was happening all the time and they'd sort of come in as young people. Your Laurie Daly's and your Bradley Clyde's and Glenn Labs. These fellas had come in as very young Origin players and got belted and got dropped. Mm. You know, they'd been through it. Your Benny, they'd actually come in and failed and yeah, well, got dropped from yeah. the Origin environment because, you know, we need, we need success. We'll just throw them out, yeah. you know. And so they'd gone through the pain of losing as well. And um, I was coaching Panthers at the time. They were a successful team. Um, the Raiders were the successful team of that era as well, and they had a number of players. So they've made up a lot of the team that was in there, Balmain players that had played in grand finals of that era. So we, I struck upon not just a talented group of players, but a really great group of blokes, mm. of blokes that bought in what needed to happen if they were going to match Queensland in origin. Yeah, and um, and that's I was probably lucky that I struck upon or struck a chord with that, or struck upon people that were willing to to buy into that mm. because you got it. Yeah. It's not easy taking 17 players from all these different clubs in one week and trying to pull them together in a group mm. to have and fight for a common cause and have a bond together. Um, and when we got to the end of that first three years, we became the first New South Wales team to win three in a row. Um, they would openly state if it felt like a club team to them and they felt like they yeah, were well. so close. And it's now when you see each other, you have those memories and all that, but... Yeah, it was a it was a special time. Um, why they chose me? Because I was probably the easy option. Because mm. that's just what it was at the time. Yeah, um, they probably didn't expect those results. But that's what we got. <laughs> but we had, we we had great players. We really did. What what stands out for you the most in that you know the three peat or winning three in a row? Is there a specific series or a moment in a series where it almost um, encapsulated? what that group of men were all about? There's, there's a number of moments, many of them probably away from the training field, the playing field, but there was a moment, it was very hard in the initial stages because we made a young bloke captain of our team that had never captained a team before, a bloke called Laurie Daly, mm. who was uh, one of the great players in the game at the time, but had never been a captain and he was a bit reluctant and a bit shocked that we gave him the captaincy and uh, the captain of Queensland was Mal Meninga, mm. was his teammate at the Raiders and Mal's a very imposing the great aura and you know he had he had run the Raiders and these kids since they were young so mm. there was this kind of massive respect and you know Mel was their senior player and and Laurie as a captain I think in the early stages was quite in awe of Mel mm. uh, and and where it was and we spoke to him a lot about um, he had to get over that mm. to be the leader that that our team needed, and which, which he did. But there was a moment in the game, um, and I think it was game two, two in 1993. I think we'd won the opening game in Brisbane, and then we came down to wrap up the series uh, in Sydney in game two. And the scores were close at the back end of the game, and um, Queensland, as they do, were throwing the ball around and looking for this Hail Mary that they were going to get. And the ball went out to the right-hand side of the field, and Mal Meninga latches onto this ball breaks through the line, he heads off downfield and there's mm. no one in front of him between here and the try line. And I look back to see who's covering and all I could see is the back of Laurie Daly, number six, charging across at Mel Meninga. Mm. And I had a perfect vision of what happened at that moment mm. in that Mel Meninga took a look at Laurie, took a look at the corner post 
and then slowed down and waited for support. Wow. Wow. And Laurie got to him, yeah. saved the day, saved the try. We scored again after that and we won the game. But it was kind of like that was the moment mm. where Mal showed Laurie the utmost respect. Mm. Before that, when they go out to toss, Mal would keep Laurie waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Laurie was always standing out there freezing in the car waiting for Mal to come out and toss the coin. Little things like this the yeah, whole time. Because yeah. when Laurie first made Origin, he, he said he went home and they went to training that night and... Laurie said, oh, I'm playing Origin against Mal. You know, Mal comes over and said, you'll be right, son. Don't worry, you'll be right. And then bashed him for three weeks in a row when they got to Origin and absolutely killed him. So he's, But that, it, was that, it was that kind of moment. And after that, Laurie used to keep Mal waiting for the toss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible moment because, like, it's almost if Mal didn't – I mean, obviously he respected him, but on the field, Mal is all about physical dominance. Absolutely. And it was to... it was a, an amazing, and I I've never spoken to Mal about it. I've never mm. asked him what happened, but he kind of you could you could see it. Mm. And I went home and replayed it really quickly to have a look at it. But Laurie was coming across, and Mal just looked at the corner and looked at Laurie and said, "He's going to get me." Yeah. Now Mal in those days, he'd just swat him away like <laughs> yeah. flies. He was big and strong, yeah. and yeah. you know, and he'd have taken it on the opportunity. So, but he slowed down, tried to get a pass away. Laurie knocked it down, and we got the ball back, and uh, we won the game. Um, and wrapped up the series, um, but that was that was a big moment. All the other moments were away from the were away from the field. We're in the camps and in our meetings and what we went through and what we committed to uh, to be the team that they became, mm. um, a team that could win Origin series against great Queensland sides. And uh, it's no fluke that out of that came fellows like Ricky Stewart and Laurie Dale, who Brad Fittler, who've gone on to coach Origin themselves. Yeah. Uh, and still keep putting back into the blues all these years later because of, um, I guess, their love for Origin and their initial experiences of it. And the same happens with Queensland. Mm. Billy Slater's now coaching them and yeah. all those players. Kevin Walder's one of the coaches. And it's Michael, all the players that have sort of been in Origin, it's hard to let go. Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard to coach it or be involved if you haven't been involved with it and mm. understand the nature of the game, the nature of the preparation, the intensity of it, the scrutiny of it, and how emotionally draining it is uh, when you get to the end of the season, end, end of the series, whether you're a player or a coach, how emotionally draining that period has been. Uh, yeah. You've played with them. They're a special breed, those origin players, aren't they? They're just different. They're different. They're a cut above. They, um, like a really good point, or really good to, I guess, a really great insight of the fact that saying yes to coach New South Wales, but you hadn't been in the New South Wales or internet or the uh, rep footy environment, a lot of people outside listening in would be like, well, if you train with them at, you know, if you play with them at club, it should be okay. But I, I think a lot of fans may not realise that it's a, just a bit, it's a different beast. It's a it totally different beast to, to club rugby league. Um, and you can see it just by when Origin players come back to club yeah. after a good Origin series. Like, look at the guys for Queensland this year, like a guy like Hammer or something that... You know, at the start of the year, a lot of people didn't even know what position he was. Now, all of a sudden, he might get selected in Australia for the centres, but also he's one of the best fullbacks in the game. So, um, yeah, incredible insight. Freddie Fittler, I, I would just want to know, the great Freddie Fittler, you, you know, he's such a – he's a, a character that's larger than life in this game. And, and uh, you know, we speak about it all the time on this podcast, you know, regardless of, of whether you want to critique the, the, the way he coaches or whatever – what he has done for New South Wales Rugby League in the last, what, since 2015, when he put all those programs together, has been nothing short of incredible. Did, 
I've heard the stories of was he always this much of a leader or did, was he, did he build himself into a leader? What, what was he like as a young fella coming through? Uh, he was like a young kid from the western suburbs. He was larger than life. He, yeah. was, he was a lad. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and as I say, it's different planet, different era back then. Mm. Um, and I've, I've relayed this story to a number of coaches, that are the players, young players that are thrust into leadership at an early age. Mm. Brad Fittler, uh, when he was playing at Panthers when I was coaching out there, was playing in the centres, mm. um, you know, drinking beer, chasing girls, scoring tries, doing what a kid does. Yeah. And playing with... You know, Roy Simmons and Greg Alexander and mm. Cartwright and Guyer and all those great players that we, we had in the side. He was a young fellow, got into the team on talent mm. as a teenager and went through a great couple of years. Um, the Super League War thrust him into a position of leadership well before his time, mm. well before he would have even thought he was a leader. Um, and he, he then moved from Penrith to the Roosters, where I was coaching, and suddenly he's captain of New South Wales in 95. Suddenly he's captain of the Roosters in you know, 97. And mm. now they want, they want him to be a 5'8 and a playmaker. And it took him years to gain confidence in that and to build his game from there. It took him years to become a leader. Um, but by the end of it, he was the most professional, um, caring, um, ins- inspirational type player that a lot of these players ever played with. And mm. the, the last three years he had at the Roosters, we went to three grand finals. Wow. And... Um, and won a premiership and a world club challenge and um, there was a, a moment before that period there when I came back as um, the coaching director for the club and we talked about how he would manage the back end of his career and there was a time you know in between 2000 and 2001 where he admitted that he wasn't coping he hated the game he yeah. was struggling with you know, expectation he was struggling with You know, not being able to win a premiership for the Roosters and he took a lot of that burden on himself and uh, wanted to be anywhere else but training and playing rugby league. So we had to get over that little mental battle and, and get him back on course, which he did. Mm. He became the most professional footballer you, know, that you can imagine and uh, we actually brought him back in 2004 yeah. playing his last origin. <laughs> he won a series of... hearts, man. Yeah, and then years later... And, uh, to be honest, he never gave any indication he wanted to be a coach. Oh, wow. That was a lot. Well, his, his first goal in life was to never work a day in his life. <laughs> uh, that was his first goal. <laughs> and he realised after not playing for a couple of years he needed a job because he, he spent money pretty, <laughs> pretty heavy. He said, I need a job. I'm running out of money. Um, and as luck would have it, we gave him a job at the Roosters. Uh, he was doing – I can't remember what his job was. He didn't turn up that often, but um, – then the Roosters went through a difficult period and he got thrust into coaching there. He, he felt it his responsibility to go and coach. Mm. They had a good year, then they had a bad year and he kind of got burned by that and um, uh, they sort of parted ways. And then, But it was during that period, it was more the tough year than the good year that got him thinking about what a coach is and what a coach needs to be and, mm. and what he needed to do if he wanted to, to help the club and help again. So... Uh, he went back into New South Wales Junior Pathways and set up the future of uh, the New South Wales Origin side and developing kids from a young age with a group of his mates that he played with um, to build those pathways and eventually became an Origin coach. He's had six years, he's won three titles. It's, you count on one hand the amount of coaches that have won three Origin series and he's done a really good job up against formidable opposition. They're not easy to win, I don't care who takes the field, you know that. Um, and he's done a great job. But he, it was... 
um, a learning experience to, to know him as a young teenager, 17 years of age, a precocious talent and what he went through and then having leadership thrust upon him at a young age when he wasn't ready for it, changing his game, changing his personality, dealing with his own personal demons, then producing the end of a career that he can be proud of for the rest of his life to become to become the man he is, to become the father that he is, the husband that he is, the... Uh, the bloke who puts time back in, he raises money for the homeless, he raises money for charity. He's, um, I've never, ever heard him say a bad word or bag anyone in my whole life. He's just one of them sort of blokes. Uh, very kind-hearted, very big-hearted and um, uh, you know, very, very proud of him. And he's, he's been a learning experience for me. He taught me more than I ever taught him mm. uh, about life and about you know, football. And, um, it was a pleasure to, to watch it as it unfolded over that time and even today. Um, Brad Fittler's a media personality and a media star with Channel 9 and does a mm. great job. There was a time where he had a great anxi- anxiety yeah, and wow. he couldn't talk in public and he couldn't, you know, he hated being in crowds. He hated, you know, um, and these were all personal things that he had to get over the top of. You wouldn't see it today. Yeah, wow. He's so calm and so composed and yeah. so entertaining and, um, and he's really forged a great career for himself and to combine that with the origin coaching at the moment and, you know, I hope they persevere with him. Um, you know, he'll win again. Mm. The so you, the return in two thousand two was it? Well, I guess what uh, what motivated you to return? You'd already had such a successful you know run as a coach, and you definitely had I guess felt how hard it is to be an Origin coach and how much it takes out of you and how much you have to give if you want even a chance at winning. What was the motivation for coming back two thousand two? A drunken Christmas Eve luncheon <laughs> <laughs> is where it happened. It's <laughs> exactly where it happened. <laughs> Who was there? <laughs> I, I, I just, I just gone back to, um, I'd just agreed to gone back to the Roosters as the coaching director for mm. 2002, and um, uh, and we went out to a lunch. I went with Nick Politis and Mark Burris. Mm. Mark Burris was at Home Loans with the sponsor of the. Yeah. And Mark was on our board at the Roosters and passionate Roosters man, mm. um, a great man, Mark. And uh, we went out and had lunch at Woolloomooloo, one of the steak places, Kingsley and Woolloomooloo, and sitting there and drinking and going. It's why I've never drunk since that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and somehow by the end of the day, they talked me into coming back and coaching the Blues. By the end of the day, yeah, 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 come on, let's do that, we'll do that. <laughs> and if I do it, we'll do it different this time. We'll you know, entertain it. Because what had happened was, uh, Wayne Bennett had just come back for New South Wales, uh, for Queensland, mm. and we, they wiped the floor with us. I think 2001, I think uh, that was the game where he – was that the series where he brought Alfie back in game yes, three? Yes, 2001. I think they flogged us yeah. in game one up there. We beat them down here in game two, and then Alfie come back in game three, and they flogged mm. us again. And we were kind of um, – you know, Blues were feeling the heat of that, and it was kind of like – yeah, well, um, when I coached Origin before, Bennett wasn't coaching mm. for a start. I thought, well, that'd be a, a big challenge. And this is in my drunken state, mind <laughs> you. I thought this was a good idea. <laughs> the next day, I didn't think it was such a smart choice. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad I did. We, we did it a little differently because by this time, I'm working with Channel 9. Mm. And I gave Channel 9 and the cameras great access and I gave the public great access into what we were doing to see mm. behind the scenes which I would like to think is the forerunner for a lot of the stuff we do in television these days mm. and getting access and having players and coaches feel more comfortable about 
and being on the end of a microphone in their quietest moments or in you know their private moments. Yeah. Um, the dressing room was always the inner sanctum, and you know you would never talk to players and coaches during games, and you'd never get into training camps and see what really went on. Yeah. Um, so we did during those three years, and um, we drew with Mr. Bennett's team the first year, and we won the next two years. Unbelievable. So I want to talk about the 2004 series. It's obviously famous for the first of all the win, but also you know Freddie coming back. What was the, the impetus to bring? Freddie back was it because you knew him as a man and that's what you needed or what was the the reasons two reasons um brad was captaining new south wales uh and he declared that i think 2001 would be his last series Mm. and they were going into game three to play against queensland up at uh, the old anz stadium the one that was out of town uh, QE2 it used to be called. QE2. Yeah. So Queensland had shocked them in game one at the old Lang Park. Mm. Then they closed Lang Park down and they went to QE2 mm. for game three. But Queensland had shocked them in game one. Bennett came back with a team of rookies and wiped the floor with them. Mm. Lottie Takiri, Darren Lott, all these fellas scored tries. And um, New South Wales came down to Sydney and flogged Queensland in game two. So it was kind of assumed that Queensland, New South Wales would carry it on in game three. And... And Bennett pulled the masterstroke, as it turned out, of bringing Alfie back from England, yeah. who was 34 years of age, and he'd sacked him from the Broncos, but now he was bringing him back to play with Queensland. And so it was kind of expected that New South Wales would win, and this would be Brad Fittler's last game in origin. Yeah. And they'd actually, Channel 9 had got me organised to go down in the dressing room after the game and interview Brad after the last, after full time. Yeah. Here he was, his last game in Origin, he's captain, and you know, this is going to be a nice story. Yeah. <laughs> well, as it turned out, it was a disaster because <laughs> Queensland got absolutely flogged. And Brad's very sensitive and, you know, and um, it kind of stuck with him. And, I, and not that I gave it any thought on that night, mm. but I always knew that he deserved better than that. Yeah. And, you know, the whole Alfie thing had overwhelmed New South Wales and, and mm. they flogged us. And um, I didn't think it at the time, but over the next couple of years – uh, with the Roosters, like we went to three grand finals in a row. We won the comp in 2002. Mm. I was the coaching director there. Ricky Stewart was the coach. And we had a coaching team of Dean Pay, John Cartwright, Ivan Cleary and Shane Flanagan. All became first grade coaches wow. in their own right after wow. that era. Ricky had never coached first grade before. Yeah. So we had a coaching team of five. I was the coaching director and um, they all became great first grade coaches. Um, and I'd watch Brad and... Probably after we won in 2003, I had it in the back of my mind, wouldn't it be nice if we could get him one more game? Not really thinking that it would ever happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so <clears throat> we had a draw in 2002. 2003, we beat them. And then in 2004, uh, we had a bit of upheaval in Camp 1, but we managed to win anyway. We, I think we won a field. There was a Sean Timmons field goal. We won 9-8. Yeah. And we went to Queensland and they beat us with the... Um, Billy Slater offside try <laughs> that, I, that I don't hold a grudge about at all. It was only three metres offside. They changed the rule after no, that. There's other too. angles, mate. There are other angles you don't get <laughs> yeah. to see. I know what angle it was. We're playing at Lang, we're playing at Lang Park. We're not overruling that. That was the angle. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so um, but what had, what had happened was after game one, I think our halfback was Craig Gower. He did his knee in game one. Mm. Then we brought in... Um, Someone else who got hurt and then someone come into camp and did their hamstring and I'd sort of – so I rang Brad for game two. Like we're playing at Lang Park in Queensland. It's not a decider. So I, I rang him and I, I – we hadn't – there was no one else. Mm. 
and I, I, I didn't know whether to ask him or impose on him. I didn't think he would say no if I asked him. Yeah. And uh, I, rang, I rang him, he picked up the phone, I didn't say anything, I just said, what do you think? He said, yeah, I'm there. Wow. So <laughs> that's, that was the conversation. Wow. I said, what do you think? And he said, yeah, I'm there. Wow. So he came into camp for game two. We lost that one. Mm. That was the Billy Slater offside try. If you don't <laughs> want to go back and have a look, he's that far offside. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was kind of like a warm-up to come back to Sydney for game three. Mm. And uh, I said, do you want to go again? He said, no, yeah, look, we'll, let's finish this. We'll beat him next time, which we did. Mm. And he had a great send-off. And um, that was one of the really pleasing things because I said that would be my last Origin game too. So... Mm. Um, we both retired on the same night. What I love about you know Freddie's moment, you know, with the charge down, is you know he's incredibly skillful, strong, a very strong five eight. He obviously played sometimes on the forward in the centres, but it was the what he is almost known for when you speak to players that play with him. He's just refusal to give in, like mm. just absolute absolute refusal to accept circumstances the way they are. He had great grounding with the senior players that he had. Right from the start of his career, he played with some really tough players um, at Penrith and later at the Roosters, and he played with some great people. Um, he was a very committed athlete. I, in all his career, which spanned 16 years, I could count on one hand the number of training sessions he missed. Yeah, wow. Um, I think I spoke at his testimony, I did speak at his testimonial when his career was over. And in 16 years, he'd played 425 first-class matches, you know, club matches, origins, rep matches, mm. Australian tours, et cetera, et cetera, 425, which worked out 26 first-class games a year for 16 consecutive years. Mm. Uh, you don't do that unless you're playing with injury. You don't do that yeah. unless you're tough and committed. You don't do that unless you're professional about what you're doing. And there were days where he trained with injury, where he played with injury, mm. um, but was always reliable and on the field um, he always gave 100% of himself. Mm. Um, when he was young, um, he could have his moments where he'd drift off and have a bit of a daydream and I, I would only have to get the trainer, I'd say to the trainer, Ronnie Palmer, just go out and ask Brad if there's any danger of him having a run today. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, see, <laughs> I'd see Ronnie go out and whisper in his ear and he'd turn around and look up at the coach's box and give him a <laughs> Then he'd score a try. <laughs> Yeah, but he, um, nah, he was, uh, yeah, complete professional and uh, he ended up a great leader and all those players that we had at the Roosters at the time and um, all talk about what the influence he had on their career, like playing with a player like him made them, mm. made their career, made them their money, you know, mm. got them their house, you know, yeah. without it, without playing with a player like that, you can be blessed to be in an environment where you're playing with one of the great players, you know, your yeah. Lockyers, your Johnses, your Langers and... Mm. You know those sort of players. They make other players great as well. Mm. And um, I've got to I've got to ask you this because it's just too good not to ask. The coaching um, in 1994 when the great Bill Harrigan uh, <laughs> dismissed you. I keep saying mistaken identity. <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? Mistaken identity. <laughs> it was a mistaken identity. <laughs> My doctor, <laughs> who shall remain nameless, but Norm yelled out something. <laughs> What, what happened was we – I'd never been in a game like this before. The penalties were 13-0 against us. Oh, <laughs> it was wow. about It was about eight minutes to go. The penalties were 13-0 against us. 13-0. Yeah, and we got our first penalty like in the 73rd minute oh. and it was right in front of me. 
And I yelled out to John Cartwright, tell them we don't want it, give it to them. (laughs) 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 And (laughs) my good mate, my doctor, was still a great mate, was sitting on the bench there. And anyway, I got blamed for it. (laughs) And he sent me off. (laughs) He sent me off as a player and a coach. So (laughs) it's pretty embarrassing. That's so good. Um, What's. What part of your career do you feel like you've got the most fulfilment out? Your playing career, your coaching career, or your media career? Oh, all of it. Yeah? Yeah. It's all a blessing. Mm. All of it. Yeah, it's – well, we're all players. Mm. That's, that's why we, we're in the game. We all played. Yeah. And that's all that's we want to be. Yeah. You know, if I could be 24 for an hour again, I'd play football. Yeah. I'd just want to do that yeah. for the whole hour. Yeah. You know, it's just um, – you know, and you know it's a very special time and it's a great achievement to play in that game. And mm. for blokes that even play one first-grade game, it's a badge of honour. You know, it's pretty elite stuff right there. Yeah. Um, it's um, – yeah, so you become too old to play. Mm. So then you think by the time you, your body's given up, I finally learnt this game. I know what it's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've made a stack of mistakes and things I could have done better. Maybe yeah. I can help someone else with it. Mm. So you get into coaching. And like when I went into coaching, it wasn't a career. Mm wasn't highly paid at all. Yeah. You hardly got paid. Mm. It was kind of like I was still working a job the first couple of years I coached. Crazy. It's just like it's just yeah. like a different world. Well, it was. Yeah. I earned my first year as, as the Bulldogs when we won the premiership, I earned $12,000. I went on the trip away. I owed them money <laughs> at the end of the year. <laughs> Surely they can waive it. Oh, my God, I gave you a premiership. <laughs> I owed them money. So... Um, yeah, so, so then you – and then I, I burned out, like during the Super League war and the Roosters and the fight for survival and everything we went through, and I thought I'll just take some time off at the end of 99. I, mm. I, I kind of – I actually went up to Terry Hills to Brad Fittler and had a game of golf with him and halfway around the time I so said, I've had enough. I'm thinking, you know, yeah. how would you feel if I gave it away? You know, mm. He said, you do what you want to do. You know? mm. So I drove straight down and saw Nick that afternoon and said, I can't – I still had two years to go on the contract. I said, I just oh, yeah. can't. I can't do it justice, you know, I can't, mm. I've had enough. And it was a pretty intense time and that's, it was during that time, during that Super League era and survival and that sort of thing that um, uh, I'd sort of morphed into the media role as a spokesman mm. for the ARL and Channel 9 and um, so when I, I stopped playing I got opportunity to work with Channel 9 um, and I've sort of been there since that time, so it's, you know, 23 years later. I tell people I've been in... Team sport all my life. The mm. best team I've ever worked with is Channel Nine. Yeah, people well. there and how hard they work and mm. their dedication and the camaraderie amongst the group and, and everything. And I've been in some pretty special environments, but for longevity and quality of work, and they do some outstanding stuff. Yeah, you wouldn't know that if you read the media at different times. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're a brilliant team. Mm. And they you know, they make our game better than it is. Mm. The way they portray it and promote it and um, commentate it pictures the stories the, the personal stories the insights mm. uh, the behind the scenes and all that it's it gives everyone a great insight into our in our game and it's a big reason why the game is as popular as it is today why it's funded the way it is why players have got now full-time careers and not just players all sorts of employments now around mm. our game yeah. all sorts of trading partners around our game um, that you know, governments and corporates using our game as a platform for their own engagement, their own community engagement, be it in business or community or, or charities and all sorts of special things. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, like I say, it's a different planet today, but mm. I can see where it's come from and 
the people that have been responsible for it over the years. So, um, yeah, I don't. What was the question again? I can't remember. Mate, well, I've got to get to the next question because I need to know this. How did the pre-game origin hype up chats start? Because they are. Uh, because you haven't done it last. Did you not do it last year? I haven't done it for years. Yeah been a while. Every time the origin comes around, people please. say, you're going to do a thousand. I haven't done just it for years. Just one more. Just give us one more, Gus, <laughs> I haven't please. done it for years. Oh, I think God. the last one I did was in Townsville. When, when was the origin in Townsville? It was the end of the season, 21. So I haven't done it since 21. That was the last How one did I did. Because like, it became like such a big part for people that aren't players. They're the fans of the game like myself yeah. now. How did it start? I don't know how it started. I, I really don't know. I, I remember... Working for Channel 9, doing a city-country game. Mm. Might have been at Newcastle or somewhere. They, they did a city-country game at Newcastle. And um, there was this, always this thing about the country boys are tougher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I got on, I got on before – and I, no one had planned this. I just did it myself. Wow. Like it wasn't, Channel 9 never asked me to do this, yeah. but it was just to come on and give a quick preview of the game and mm. – you know, and I said, you know, these country blokes, I said, they all think they're tougher and whatever and they think the city blokes are really soft and, you know, they sip lattes in the eastern suburbs. <laughs> Let me tell you where these city blokes came from. They come from Mount Druitt, they come from here, they come from there, they come from Liverpool, oh, they come from Parramatta, they come from here. This is, you know, this is what it's life's like out there. I gave it to them and said, yeah, so if you think we're soft, just think again. Anyway, and City won the game. So, But it kind of went on for like a minute and a half and Channel 9 said, what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I just got sick of them calling us soft because we, because we live in the city. I said, and the country blokes were tougher it was kind of like an origin thing you know? yeah so it was i think it was city country origin might have even been at the time and i don't know who i don't know what year that was and i don't know who asked me but then someone said um pre before a game can you just give something like a team talk you what was the last thing you'd say to a team yeah and it sort of evolved from there and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger oh, to no. the point where i thought i can't keep doing this what can I do? There's nothing more I can do that's different. And then I'm getting old and I can't remember my lines, and you know, it's it's not easy, mate. It's uh, it's almost like a like a halftime show for the, the fans. Like you're waiting for Gus because as soon as it's almost like when you say that speech, now Origins arrived. Like yeah, it hasn't yeah. arrived until yeah. that speech is arrived. Now but again, they they dressed it up beautifully. You know, mm. you'd be standing under the goalpost there, and yeah. they have the moving camera around you. They have that theme music underneath it. And, mm. Uh, and they, you know, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Um, I remember one night there, <laughs> it was just starting to sprinkle rain. And I was standing <laughs> under the goalposts and um, uh, Tony Chalmers was our on-field sort of director. You know, mm. he was the, the manager of the whole thing. And he's standing there and he's got an umbrella over the top of me, protecting me from the rain. Yeah. And he says, you know, when, when you get your cue, he said, I'll walk away and you can give your speech, which will be about a minute and a half, and then yep. I'll give you back the umbrella, you know, so he didn't want me to get too wet. So I'm standing under the thing, the rain's starting to get heavier, and he's, he's got the umbrella there, and he's standing there alongside of me, and he said, uh, they're coming to you in two minutes, they're coming to you in two minutes, they're coming to you in a minute. Yeah, yeah, they're coming. I'm listening to the show upstairs, because you've got a got an earpiece in your ear and you can hear everything that's going on upstairs and there's people talking to you while you're talking mm. you know telling you how long you're going and all that sort of thing so it's very distracting so anyway um they're just about to throw down to me mm. so tony removes the umbrella he says good luck buddy and walks away and as he says that peter sterling turns around i think to andrew johns and asks him a question and andrew johns gives a five minute answer <laughs> by now it's 
pissing down rain and I'm standing there drowning in all this water and Tony's standing there with the umbrella wondering whether he should come back into shot or not and when it's going to start. So by the time they got to me, I'm drenched. And I can't remember a lot. I don't remember what I was going to say. I don't remember what I was going to talk about. I'm thinking I'm freezing cold. I'm absolutely soaking in rain. So it was, yeah. Oh, mate, that is all time. Um, <laughs> just quickly, I wanted to ask you, I, I feel like as a, again, as a fan in regards to the Super League war, we hear a lot of the Super League side, to a degree, from the ARL side. If you could, you know, say that you were the ARL side, I don't know whether you intentionally landed there or it was just something that happened. First of all, when did you know that this was almost a game-breaking situation, as in this could, you know, ruin rugby league forever? And also, when did you, I guess, decide that you know what, I'm willing to take the pressure that comes with being almost the front man for this side of things? Yeah, that's. We haven't got enough time here to discuss <laughs> what happened around that time. Oh, mate. Oh. It, it was quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, and at the time, a rather dawning experience because we really didn't know where it was coming from. I will tell a story I don't think I've ever told before is that um, I just started coaching at the Roosters. And obviously on the board of the Roosters that time was a young James Packer, mm. uh, who was the Packers' own Channel 9 at that time. Um, and obviously owned the media rights and the pay TV rights for the future, which is what was the catalyst for the, for the pay TV war that eventuated. But Ricky Stewart, who I'd coached in origin in 92, 93, 94, by 95, when I went to coach the Roosters, was thinking about leaving the Raiders and come to play for the Roosters. And we'd organised for him to come and meet us. We were playing a home game at, um, at the Sydney Football Stadium and Ricky was going to come up and watch the game and then he was going to come and have a talk to me and Nick Politis about potentially joining the Roosters. And I remember meeting him in the bar pre-game and he said something to me like, are you blokes in the Super League? And I said, what's Super League? And he kind of looked at me as though he'd spoken out of school. Oh, wow. And he said, oh, nothing. And Ricky disappeared. I never saw him again. We never saw him again that day. <laughs> He, he just assumed that yeah. I would know what he was talking about. Wow. And I think it was a week later mm. that the Super League war broke out, which wow. was kind of like a clandestine in the middle of the night type um, mm. coup uh, to mm. sign up players and take them to a rival competition. And yeah. all of it, I think, I don't, I don't think they ever had any intention of their own competition. I think it was just to force the issue on negotiation for whatever you there was a lot of um, things that went on on that day, but I, I at that time was obviously coaching the Roosters. I was the New South Wales <coughs> Origin coach. Bob Fulton was the Australian coach. Um, neither of us were working at Channel Nine at the time, mm. uh, and um, um, we were called to a meeting in at Phillips Street because the previous night representatives of News Limited had gone into these clubs and were signing up players and clubs to... It was kind of like a well-orchestrated type yeah, coup, wow. you know. Um, Bob Fulton and I were the rep coaches of the day and to protect the game or the future of the game, what they thought the future of the game for the ARL and to protect Channel 9's rights um, that they wanted, uh, they funded something of a, a counter-attack to whatever and... Um, Bob Fulton and I were actually writing for News Limited at the time. We were columnists with that newspaper, but we weren't included in, in anything that was planned around that wow. game. 
um, and as Origin coaches and that we were very good or well connected with the leading player managers of the day and player management was only a new thing Mm. back in that day. There weren't very many of them but they controlled a lot of the players. Um, So for the next however many days we virtually didn't sleep Mm. and went out and signed as many players as we could to protect our competition. I think my focus was... um, my focus was protection of the establishment, obviously the Australian Rugby League, mm. uh, that they had to control the game, and B, I didn't think media ownership would be any good f- for the game. Yeah, uh, I'd seen this overseas, and so my my motivation was protection of the traditional owners of the game, mm. and also for there to be no media ownership of the game, which I didn't think would be good for the game, and I didn't, um, and they were sort of my motivations at the time. It became very much a very spiteful war mm. and uh, very difficult times. It made um, friends of enemies and enemies of friends. Mm. Um, and some people didn't recover. Yeah. Some people, I believe, it cost them their lives uh, over a period of time because of the stress and the lost friendships and mm. everything that went on. Um, that might sound a little bit dramatic, but I lived through it, so I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a difficult time for the game. I learned over time what it was truly all about and I was able to keep very circumspect with that. And, um, and as I say, that's where I became more involved in media work, mm. which led to the career that I've had. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see too many positives that come out of that time, but there were positives for a lot of individuals and a lot of people. Mm. in what it created, I think those positives would have emerged anyway had, okay. it taken, had the game taken its natural course. But mm. it certainly gave me an insight uh, into the media industry, into big business people and the way they operate yeah. and to actually what was coming in the future because when I actually sat down and asked, you know, what's this really all about? It had nothing to do with rugby league. It had nothing to do with pay TV. It had everything to do with the internet and interactive services and the future of communications and entertainment and yeah. getting a stake in something that was probably 20 years, 30 years down the track, which mm. is the world we live in today. Yeah. Um, it would be extraordinary if I relayed the conversation I had with James Packer at that time about the future of media and the future of communications and telephones. And He virtually described an iPhone to me 10 years before Far out. we ever saw one. That is wild. Like That's 10 cool. years before it happened this, and, and saying this is, yeah, like rugby league might be a billion dollar industry, you know, pay TV might be a $15 billion industry, but interactive services, we don't know what that's worth. Yeah, wow. And I said, what's an interactive service? Mm. That's the internet. <sighs> what do you mean? Well, in life, you're going to end up with a mobile phone that controls your life. You're going to do all your entertainment, all your spending, all your travel, all your shopping, all your communications, all your... Um, um, friendships, everything is going to be on your mobile phone. And I'm yeah. looking at him like he's come from another planet. Mm. Um, so wild. whether it was that <clears throat> in-depth from the other side of the equation, I mm. don't know. But I do know that there were a number of people that were looking 20 and 30 years ahead. Mm. And rugby league being the popular winner sport here in this country and the driver of, and the driver of subscribers and to get you know, pay TV off the ground and businesses, um, which... You know, and you're talking about Telecom at the time, Telstra and News Limited and you know, media organisations that were global, you know, it was... Uh, and we're only a small country. Yeah. We're not a big country at all. Mm. Um, but in this country, it was, it was a big thing. 
Um, so, yeah, it was, and as I say, and during that time it was about, I was, co- I was coaching the Roosters, it was about survival of the Roosters as a club. Yeah. Um, as in their own entity because 94-95, they'd run last in first and reserve grade. They were probably seen as expendable. Yeah. Uh, but by the end of it, it was one of the ones that they couldn't afford to lose. Yeah, wow. And we survived the, the cull when they, they reduced the teams in uh, later on. But anyway, um, yeah, we went through the split competitions, two competitions, uh, media wars. Um, as I say, made enemies of friends and friends of enemies mm. for a long time, some of which have never healed us. Wow. It's just, was there ever a period during that time where you go, where you thought in your, you know, your darkest hour, the game's dead? Or you were always confident the game would win? Hundred percent. Yeah. Never, never. You know, like, and when I say like um, darkest hour, now because when you're younger and you're bullish and you, you, you know, you're confident, like it was kind of like we weren't going to lose mm. fight. You yeah. Know? Um, uh, might have lost the negotiation in time, but that's just business. You can't control that. Mm. We certainly didn't lose the fight on behalf of the Australian public and on behalf of the fan of rugby league yeah. and on behalf of the future of our game. We didn't lose the fight at all. Yeah. Um, but. Business is business, mm. and how it evolved from there, um, and then eventually, when we formed the Australia, when we formed the, the commission, and we removed media ownership from the game, the game has blossomed even further again yeah. from that period. So, mm. um, yeah, that, that, great, great learning experience. As I understand it, it's a, a work study for university courses oh, and people. You know, so in, interesting. Yeah, and. All the written versions have probably come from one side of the equation. As yep. they say, people who win the wars usually write the history. Um, <laughs> but there is a, a, a truth behind that that people haven't heard or yeah, well, seen. It's, um, it actually brings me to my next question. I personally believe <coughs> that the game's in the best position it's ever been in. I think that we've definitely got issues in the game. I think we'll always have issues in the game. But you know, me being, a, I guess, a younger pundit or whatever, I think that the game is in the best healthiest spot it's ever been do you think the game is as good as it can be right right now understanding there's always going to be issues or do you think that there's areas that we really need to improve i think we're right on the i think we're right on the edge of greatness Mm. right at the moment i think this is the best time i've seen in the game to actually fulfill its true potential Mm. not just in this country but you know uh, in other playing areas around the world um um, there are a couple of factors that do that. I think that um, the Super League war was one thing. Um, the formation of the commission and removing media ownership was a second thing that's led to this. And COVID, yeah. funny enough. And people say, you know, um, COVID caused problems for the game. COVID exposed the problems with the game. Mm. Um that period there, if if we didn't have someone like Peter Volandis in charge of the game at that time, mm. and for COVID to unearth what was really happening in the real state of the game at that time, and I remember I just the, the commission a couple of times during that period about the real state of the game before COVID hit and during COVID to say that you know what I told you three months ago now you can see for yourself yeah. because they actually did a deep dive into where the game actually stood and where it you know, where it was going. Mm. You know, Constantly borrowing from the future and constantly overspending and constantly having nothing to show for their efforts, um, and facing the real fact that if we didn't get the game back on the field, the game was in real trouble. Mm. That's that's how 
things had got. Yeah. Um, and when when it was exposed truthfully, the state of the game, and truthfully how bad things were, um, particularly financially, um, then it opened the door to recovery. Mm. And surviving COVID better than anyone else, and then coming out of the back of COVID as a country, what it's done for us coming out of COVID and all those lockdown periods, whether you agree with them or not, that's what we went through and, and come out of it, to now looking at the crowds we're getting at games, looking at the atmosphere at Newcastle and in New Zealand and home grounds that are selling out virtually on a weekly basis in suburban grounds and yeah. the new stadium that we've got, you know, the new Parramatta Stadium, the new Allianz Stadium, you know, we'll eventually have the Furishman there. You know, we've got, <coughs> you know, we've got all these teams in the competition now that are, building new facilities and mm. um, you know, and I, I do think we'll get to 20 teams at some time, sometime in the next decade. I do think we'll play in conferences. I think it'll be a wholly different world in a, you know, 10 years' time, 20 years' time. And thankfully now we've got people that are thinking about that. Yeah. People didn't look beyond their own contracts or their own time. Yeah. There was no one really trying to leave a legacy for the game or planning what the game should look like in all that time. We're still a little bit ad hoc. We yeah. still knee-jerk reaction. We change rules and do silly <laughs> things with that and... <laughs> you know, we make decisions, you know, for the wrong reasons yeah. and, you know, to fix a problem today that only creates a problem down the track. But um, I think I think the Volandis era will be recognised as the one where um, the most positive changes have taken place mm. and gives us it. we've got to get there yet. Yeah. We're not there yet. But I think right at the moment we we are right on the footsteps of, of greatness for our game. If, mm. if our... Australian Rugby League, if the Commission here in Australia, the people that run Rugby League now in Australia choose to, and I hope they will, take over International Rugby League, right? take over the development of the game internationally, then I think we're on, we're on the verge of something really great. Mm. It won't happen unless the NRL does it. We can't leave it to the International Board. Yeah. We can't leave it to the UK. We certainly can't leave it to New Zealand. You're not going to leave it to Pacific Island nations. But I think we've shown enough now... Um, in what's eventuated over the last two or three seasons, to know that handled right, if the NRL took over the development of the game worldwide, anything is possible. Mm. People thinking the trip to Vegas is a gimmick, I think it's part of a far greater plan. Yeah. And I think that you've got to start somewhere. And while, you know, I remember in 1980 when they decided to play this game called State of Origin and people said it was a gimmick. <laughs> it will never last. Wow. Well, so if you're calling Vegas a gimmick, mm. um, who knows where that looks like in 40 years' time. Yeah. You might live to see it. I won't live to see <laughs> it. But I, I can see where it's going if, yeah. if it's followed along the lines that it should. If, they can, you know, if we can just stop the self-interest and selfishness which has inhibited our game for so... If we stop navel-gazing and worrying about you know, the day-to-day media mm. wars and intricacies of that and get our minds on the bigger picture and actually have smart people in charge of the direction of the game, I think we're on the verge of greatness mm. if we choose to take it. Yeah. If we get satisfied with what we've got now, the minute you stand still, people go past you. Yeah. But I see so many other codes struggling, yeah. um, and they're not doing the work that I think we can do. Mm. So I would hope that the NRL or the ARL Commission or whatever it is um, seizes the opportunity now because we can grow into a great international sport mm. in the next 20 years. Yeah. I'm really confident of that. As I say, I won't live to see it, but you will. I'm your, back, your I'm kids back in. Will. I'm yeah. backing in. 
I reckon yeah. you'll. I reckon you'll be around for another hundred. No, I won't. No, no, no I won't. <laughs> <laughs> mate, and just quickly before that, I you can't go. afford to live that long. <laughs> <laughs> before I let you go, mate, Broncos or Warriors and Penrith and Melbourne winners out of those two games. Yeah, Broncos and Panthers have been the two best teams, and they'll get there. They've got all the Origin players in their side now. Yeah. Um, Storm are a light of better days. They've done well to get where they are, and the Warriors, they've had their big day. That was uh, fascinating for them. And Warriors are going to be forced in years to come. You know, you haven't, you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg there at the moment. Yeah. You know, we're going to get their pathways right over there. The game invests in New Zealand. New Zealand the Warriors are investing in themselves. Uh, um, you know, I think they're going to be wonderful down the track, and they've done a great job to get where they are. I spent a bit of time with that club during the COVID years, and that, um, um, but uh, very happy for them, but... Ah, uh, no. Panther v Bronco Grand Final. Oh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, mate, I ask all the guests this. Favourite, I usually say favourite rapper of all time, but I'm assuming you're not a rap man. Favourite singer of all time? Favourite singer of all time? Yes. Billy Joel. Billy Joel. And favourite movie of all time? A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men. Yeah, great bloody movie. Mate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was, oh, what an insight. What an insight. Thank you so much, mate. Pleasure.